Midnight in Karachi with Mavish Murad on tour.com. Welcome back to Midnight in Karachi. We're back in action after a December hiatus and today Emily Foster joins me to talk about her new novella The Drowning Eyes which is now out from tour.com. It's about a young woman who is much much more than she initially seems to be and the crew of a ship she boards to complete a quest she's been tasked with. It's a fantastic cast of intriguing characters. There's weather magic, women who can control the wind, and of course, hijinks on the high seas. Lots and lots of fun. Emily, welcome to Midnight in Karachi. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, will you tell us a little bit about The Drowning Eyes? It's just been out a couple of days. What was your initial premise for the story? Well, um, I knew I wanted to write something about um, something about life on the high seas and something something involving islands and people going to and from. Um, I go on, I was doing a lot of traveling at the time, and it just kind of seemed like a fun kind of fantasy analog to what I was doing at the time, and um, just kind of the idea of weather magic has always appealed to me, so I guess I kind of got to combine the two and just saw where I went from there. You have this really great cast of characters, um, and I hope I'm pronouncing their names correctly. This is how I've been saying them, Tazir and Sheena especially. Were they the first characters you thought of? Yeah, actually, um, Tazir is very similar to a lot of friends of mine, and uh, I just she was a lot of fun to write. She's just kind of a hustler, and I thought Sheena was a great foil to uh, foil for her, um, and just kind of their interactions and then b- bouncing off of the, them off of each other was uh, a great way to actually kind of get that story going. Did you plan out all your characters first? Did you have a list of who they were and what they did, and then fit them into the story, or did they come alongside the story building? You know, I kind of build my characters as I build my stories, and uh, I find that as I write these characters, um, just kind of my story come my my plot kind of depends on what they need for their personal growth, where I kind of want them to go as characters, and kind of rather than ra- rather than kind of setting out their personality beforehand, I kind of let it be shaped by the events and vice versa. I wanted to talk a little bit about how you develop the relationships between the characters. You know, the shipmates of the Giggling Goat, especially. There's lots of really great, fun dialogue between them. There's lots of camaraderie, and it's, you know, the dialogue is quite unique to each character. I wasn't at any point confused as to, you know, the voices between them. How did you work out how to draw the lines between their voices? Did you have a specific process for creating everyone? Um, I just tried to kind of get in the heads of the different people and kind of kind of line them out like when you're just in a crowd of people like in a bar or whatever and you're talking to people and each one has their little mannerisms and quirks and it's kind of like because I figure when you're writing when you're reading a book you're kind of getting to know a bunch of new people and I mean the things you notice about the characters are going to kind of be the same things that you might notice uh, trying to get a get to know a room full of people at a party and kind of so that's kind of the traits that I pick up on and that's what I kind of try to write down when I'm creating these characters. That's interesting that. to think of them as, as, you know, a bunch of people at a party who perhaps you've just met or just been introduced to. If you were at a party with all of them, who would you spend most of your time with? I would absolutely spend all of my time with Tazir. Um, she's really bad at gambling. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if she sounds like the right person to spend all your time with. No, she's a terrible person to spend all my time with. But relatively speaking, she's not doing too badly. <laughs> But um, yeah, she 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 was a lo- she was a lot of fun to write, and uh, I think ge- generally the most the most party hardy of all the characters. Uh, Sheena, I think, has less of a tolerance for people's nonsense. I'm not I'm not sure how long Sheena would get along with me if we were to hang out together. 
I feel like she might be sitting in a corner, you know, watching for a large judging part of the time. Judging, a little. Judging, all right. <laughs> I'm now wondering if you figured out what each of them would drink at a bar, even. Um, I, 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 most of my stories seem to begin with, to begin in bars lately. Which um, this one does too, yes. <laughs> yes, it does, it does. I, I've, I've been alerted to this fact, um, but uh, Tazir has her little cheap mojitos and... I think Sheena usually gets some variation of a Shirley Temple, and I think uh, I, I don't I don't I don't know if they have beer in this part of in this part. If of the they Netflix. have Shirley Temples in this part of the in this world, <laughs> then I think they might have beer. Probably, probably I have to say. So let's talk a little bit about the world building for the Drowning Eyes. I don't want to give too much away myself, but I will ask you to give a little away. Tell us a little bit about the world the story is set in. We talked about the islands a little earlier. And so what were your main interests when you were creating this world? How did you go about it? Do you have like a world Bible for it and stuff? Well, my main interests were I wanted a place where the weather could be incredibly important. Um, Just coming from kind of a rural background and just kind of having... The family history has been a lot of kind of islanders, and my ancestors were whalers, and just kind of everybody lives and dies by the weather. And um, I'm like, I want to have an ocean-going weather adventure where if, like, the weather weather can change everything at an instant. And um, also, it's starting to snow. I've been out working in the cold all of the time for the past two weeks. I don't want to write about snow or cold ever again. So I kind of wound up with the Jihiri Islands and kind of wanted to have a few different complex uh, issues with, with kind of their culture and the different cultures and different political systems kind of coming together and developing alongside each other. And kind of, I figured that'd be kind of a rich territory for maybe doing future stuff with the setting as well. So that's kind of that's kind of where I started with. Did you have any real-world influences in terms of the culture? Because your cast is, again, very diverse. You have people with, you know, say, all sorts of, you know, ethnicities. And I say ethnicities because obviously I'm basing this on the world I know, but, you know, it's a whole other world. Just the the, the cultures that I've written in the Jihiri Islands are cultures that I've encountered kind of in my own life. Um, you've got people who are real mercantile, um, who have a lot of contact with other people, um, a lot of contact with other different cultures and are real diplomatic. And you have other other cultures uh, who are more producers of a product and they've got that product and their culture is their culture and they don't really need to be diplomatic because they've got, <laughs> they've got what they've got and they've got that resource and they're sitting tight on it. And then, I mean, there's just different people coping with different, with their environment in different ways. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm trying to uh, base anybody off of anybody's particular ethnic culture. That just kind of doesn't seem like my place in the world, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, definitely I try to think of like different small towns that I've been in, different states, different groups of people, and kind of build little mini societies off of that. And I think I think that kind of an islander setting with is kind of... A decent way to do that, carry that out. Now, I believe you grew up on a Colorado ranch. Did you? <laughs> oh, I, I, I read this somewhere. It's pretty and small to call it a, it's pretty small to call it a ranch. One of, my, one of my friends calls me a rancher, but I'm not. Okay, um, but you grew my, up. You grew my, up my in folks, Colorado. I did. I did. My my folks. My folks grew hay for their horses. 
Okay. And, uh, well, it sounds like a million. Of, it sounds like a million worlds away from the one you've created. So I mean, I want to know how this like <laughs> I, interest, how and where you know all this interest and information about seafaring and ships and stuff like that. It seems like a, a huge you know dichotomy between the two. Tell me how that happened. Tell me where you grew up and what it was like and how you went from here to the seas. Well, I grew up on this horse farm in the middle of nowhere, and my dad was a rodeo cowboy, and <laughs> that's just kind of who I grew up with was rodeo people, and just kind of, I I just kind of liked high seas adventures when I was a kid, and then like Pirates of the Caribbean, when I was so into that when I was in high school, and then like when they start, when they made that movie out of Mastering Commander, I got into all the Jack Aubrey adventures, and kind of... I just, and then I found out um, a bunch of my ancestors used to be whalers and sailors back east in Nantucket and just kind of, I started just researching this stuff and, <laughs> and I wrote, I used, to, I used to write a lot of fan fiction and I did a lot of research for the fan fiction and kind of learned how boats worked and how the Navy worked back in the Napoleonic Wars and just kind of just never stopped researching that topic for a long time. Um, and just kind of, that's just kind of been, always been something I've been vaguely interested in. Just kind of, it was something, it was something different from what I had, I guess. And, um, but I also found there was a lot of, there's just kind of a lot of similarities in mentality. Um, just kind of the cowboy mentality and that kind of rugged, me against nature kind of uh, sailor's philosophy that came out <laughs> and just kind of, I feel, I feel, I feel it's kind of relatable. Nature is always trying to kill you no matter where, right. no matter what your sea level, you know? So, yeah. uh, I mean, I kind of felt those stories were relatable. Um, this is fascinating to me, this cowboy business. You're like the most American person I've ever spoken to. I've never spoken to somebody. I'm so American. It's amazing. No, but I've never spoken to me. I, it's cowboys, right? For the rest of the world, you watch the movies, you see the stuff. You don't think it's really happening. But it's, of course, it's very much a part of, you know, of, of <laughs> what you grew up with. That's fantastic. Thanks. I'm, I, I'm, I'm kind of a walking stereotype sometimes, but I, I, try, I try to do a little better than some. <laughs> I think you did all right with this book. Oh, thanks. So who are the people and what are the books that you grew up reading? Have your tastes changed as you've evolved? I think so, actually. I mean, I started out with the, with the real hard and fast fantasy classics, you know, like, I mean, I had read all of the Tolkien by the time I was in sixth grade and like <laughs> all of, I mean, all of the Tolkien, I mean, like autistic special interest kind of Tolkien reading, um, like so, uh, all of his works I have read and then um, all the Harry Potter books, and then um, most most of the Terry Pratchett. I hope that I will not run dry on Terry Pratchett until I am well in my thirties. Um, so I'm I'm trying not to run through Terry Pratchett books too fast because there's not going to be any more of them. Um, but then when I went to college, I actually think I started to learn to appreciate books for more than the family trees and the um, and the epic battles and just kind of learning to get getting learning to get to know characters as people was something that I think I learned to actually appreciate in college and um I that's and I of course read the song of ice and fire and was promptly horrified by it um and 
just kind of started looking into less... I'm like, there has to be less horrifying fantasy out there than this kind of thing. And I started getting into stuff like Connie Willis. I went to UNC, and um, there was this cute little old lady who would sit in, in the dining hall on Central Campus with just these stacks of papers around her all day, every day. And I would walk by her, and I'm like, who is she? And people are like, oh, it's Connie Willis. And... I was always too shy, still too shy to go talk to Connie Willis, but um, I learned who Connie Willis was, and I started reading all the Connie Willis, and and um, a friend of mine introduced me to Cameron Hurley, and so I started reading the God's War series and right. all of her short stories, and so now um, I'm just really excited. <laughs> I'm just I'm I'm I think I'm actually in a branching out point in my reading right now, where I'm like I'm going to just find new authors to read. Yeah. Well, Cameron's work is is can be pretty grim as well. Uh, it's not it's like happy fantasy. <laughs> what kind of fan fiction were you writing, and do you still write any? Um, I was writing bad fan fiction. <laughs> um, I would, I just, I just would write these little bit characters who I thought did not get enough um screen time in their in their stories, and I'm just like, he was so funny, and he was so clever, and he was so charming, and. I bet he has a little sister who sends him care packages every so often and just be these little tiny side outs about this one little character who had five seconds of screen time. But I'd have to do like three hours of research to figure out what his job was and who he would have known and where he would have come from and just kind of that whole character building process. That's pretty dedicated fan fiction, though. It's it, it's weird, but um, it certainly helps me in my other fiction. <laughs> Now back to the back to the drowning eyes. It has this fantastic cover. The cover art by Cynthia Shepherd is just amazing. Was it everything you imagined? I was stunned by the cover art. Oh my goodness! I used to ghostwrite, and I have seen the worst cover art that has ever come out of a cover artist. And I didn't know what to expect with my first actual publication. And it certainly wasn't anything as phenomenal and spot on as what Shepard has done. And I'm just, I just, I'm, I'm thrilled. <laughs> it's just, it's just something amazing to look at. It is absolutely beautiful. It's stunning. Uh, tell me about this ghostwriting. How long were you doing that for? And, and will you tell us uh, what you did, or is it, is that also <laughs> secret? Oh, oh my goodness. Oh, um, I, I, I ghostwrote for about a year and a half. Um, it was mostly just terrible, terrible romance novels and worse. Um, and it paid the bills. And um, I'm happy that I don't have to do it anymore. Really? Um, terrible romance novels? Like really bad ones or like, you know, so bad they're good ones? Like, honestly, genuinely bad ones. Oh. Like, I am going to hell for writing this. <laughs> Are you really? Well, was there a demand for it? Did you make people happy? Let's put it that way. I definitely made people happy. There you go. Then you're not going to help for it. <laughs> oh, no, no. I, 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 think, I think my patron say, uh, Dr. Chuck Tingle, will look down from me on me from heaven and smile. All right. Um, now, The Drowning Eyes is your first book, right? Um, obviously, it's not yeah, the only it's one. My you... first respectable, real, publicated, good quality piece of fiction. Right. Disregarding all the fan fiction and the ghost writing. So The Drowning Eyes is your first book. Uh, that's not fan fiction. That's not ghost writing. But I'm betting, obviously, it's not the only one. So what's next for you? Have you got stuff lined up? Are you writing already? Wait, oh, well, right now, I'm, um, 
I have a trilogy of novels that I am trying to sell. Um, it's, uh, it, they're, I mean, they're set several hundred years later and half a world away from the Drowning Eyes, but in on the same planet, I would say, um, and kind of having the same influence. I just kind of, I just like to flesh these worlds out until I have fleshed an entire world out. Um, and uh, I, I definitely want to work more in the Jahiri Island setting. Um, I think... I, I think she, I think Sheena's story is not is far 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 from over. I think she is much she she's much too capable and much too talented to uh, just only have one epic adventure in her lifetime. So I think I think I would definitely like like to return to that universe. And these these novels that you're talking about are they set in a similar kind of um, setting? Um, they're set in another country and they have a different they have a different way of working magic in this particular country and. They have um, it's it's definitely have definitely more of a science science fiction type ad or more of a they they have um, more mechanical technology I suppose you could say uh, they're kind of getting into robotics and they've developed they've developed uh, this they've uh, started mass producing solar plates basically or uh, solar panels they call them solar plates but uh, and kind of dealing with the economic consequences of that and. There's, of course, uh, magical creatures that need to be appeased, as there always are. Right. <laughs> so do you think you'll always write about magic? Um, I would think so. Um, I mean, like I said, I'm your stereotyp- stereotypical American, and we are a magical sort. Um, <laughs> I just, I just, I, I honestly see a lot of mysticism going on in my culture and in my everyday life, and just kind of the way that we go about as a people, I think we believe in magic a lot more than we like to think, than we like to say we do on the internet. <laughs> that's really interesting. That's not something I ever thought of. Do you think that's, well, just, that's true of Americans as a, as a whole? I, I just, there's, there's a certain, there's a certain mystical way of looking at the world. Um, at least in my part of my America, I live, I, uh, have just, people hold things sacred and I mean, you don't mess with what people consider sacred, and I mean, people definitely do have things that just have kind of a magical attachment to them. Um, and we and we do have a rich history of folk magic and folk tales and folk heroes and just a mythology that is very much alive and very much uh, very much present, even though we don't want to acknowledge that it is mythology. Um, I mean, I mean, look, look, look at the mythos of the founding fathers. I mean, we just came out with this musical Hamilton, right? And um, and it's just we, it's it's brilliant. It's it's this brilliant take on the founding fathers, and I highly recommend everybody listen to it, um, like on loop for like a full day and ruin their lives with Hamilton because I have done it, and I want everybody else to share my shame. Um, but no, it's it's great. It's it's brilliant, and I love it. Um, but I think what part of what makes it brilliant and part of what makes it happen is that the founding fathers trademark have become kind of this kind of this pantheon of mythological magical creatures who kind of inhabit the back of our consciousness and like everybody likes to have debates about what the founding fathers' personal lives were like because it does call into um 
call to attention the fact that we have mythologized these people, and there is there's very much a mythos surrounding them. And, I mean, we love it. It's a great mythos. It's fun. It's wonderful. And it makes, it makes things like Hamilton come alive in our consciousness in the way that a lot of history can't for a lot of people. I mean, like, like we just don't experience Franklin Delano Roosevelt the way we experience Thomas Jefferson, okay? Like, it, it, it's, it, like the, the mythos needs to be there, you know? And we've got, and we, we do have just the most ridiculous stories about our founding fathers. Um, and so, some are true. Like, Thomas Jefferson and the macaroni and cheese is absolutely true, even if George Washington and the cherry tree is not. And the fact that we have the Thomas Jefferson macaroni and cheese incident is, I think, says more than anything else I could have said in this <laughs> long and rambling answer about the mythos of the founding fathers. You're going to have to tell me what that is, because I don't know what that is. Okay, so Th Thomas Je Thomas Jefferson was a weird dude. Um, I, I mean, according to most modern-day accounts, he was a terrible person, but, I mean, he was a weird dude. And one of his many special interests was macaroni and cheese. And To eat, he was I assume. He, I guess he found it in France. I guess, he, I guess the French invented this thing called macaroni and cheese. And, and, or it was the Italians, or it was something he found in Europe. Well, he was in Europe doing things that were not his job. Um, so Thomas Jefferson goes to Europe and he gets, he discovers this concept of macaroni and cheese, which I mean, to my own mind, I, my, my, I am I regularly have my own mind blown by the concept of macaroni and cheese. I cannot imagine what this must have been like for a poor 18th century Thomas Jefferson's brain to discover macaroni and cheese. Um, so it's really no wonder he actually he went and got an 18th century macaroni and cheese machine and he brought it back home to him in Monticello and he made everybody who came to dinner with him in Monticello eat the macaroni and cheese and it was terrible. It was not good macaroni and cheese. It was bad and people wrote about how bad it is. It was and it was it was early 18th century attempts at macaroni and cheese by a man who was enamored with the concept, but not really getting the execution. And that's a real part of our history. That's, there, there are so many so things in this story that are so strange to me. So many things that are just very odd. First of all, there was a macaroni and cheese machine? I guess so, man. I don't... Like, there was a lot of stuff that should have been invented by the 1780s yeah. that wasn't. We were still treating heat stroke with whiskey and we had yeah. invented macaroni and cheese. I don't I don't understand. There are some very there's some strange things about your country, Emily. Uh, just like yeah. there are about every country, but you know, cult cultural differences have never been more stark to me than they are right now. <laughs> All right, so tell me what's immediately next for you. Are you how do you work out your writing? I know you have a full-time job. Um, how, how do you do it? Do you come home? Do you write every day? Do you have a process for it? Do you have you know lists you make, notes you keep? Do you make voice notes when you're driving? What do you do? Well, I have, I, I listen to the radio when I'm driving, and I'll like bounce ideas around my head to the radio um, when I'm, and I mean I've got about, let's see, because let's see, it's really, about got about about an hour and a half, two hours of driving to do a day, so. There's that, and then I have an hour of lunch, and I usually write 
right all through my lunch break, and then um, I'll usually have a couple of hours free after work. Lately, I have to wait. <laughs> I have to wait for my horse to dry off after she works out, and so it's cold and she's sweaty, and if I put her away when she's sweaty and wet, she'll die because horses are terrible and evolutionary mistakes. But um, I can I can write while that happens, and that's an extra 45 minutes to an hour. So I mean, I get like two or three hours a day where I can just write. That's still pretty disciplined of you. <laughs> also, the whole story about the horse dying if you put her away while she's wet is just insane. <laughs> they, 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 Horses die every day in the figurative sense. They they, they only die once in li- literal sense, but April will die at least three times by the time I have finished working her out. Wow, okay. <laughs> that is also good to know. I've learned, learned so many things in this interview today. <laughs> Best of luck with the book now that it's out and stuff. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's going to be um, exciting to see what happens. I'm sure it's going to do well. It's lots of fun. Yeah, thanks. And uh, hopefully we'll speak again the next time around. We'll see what happens if the future holds. Cool, yeah, I think, yeah, that, that, that would be, um, that, <laughs> sorry, I, um, I, sorry, I, I, I'm so not articulate, um, but, yeah, thank you for having me uh, for the interview. Um, I'm, I, I am also very excited to see uh, what happens. Um, like you said, it's my first book, so I'm just kind of, I'm just happy to be here, you know? I'm just excited to see what, what the future holds. Thanks, Emily. Thank you.